Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast who says free yourselves of the constraints within your mind and be free, okay? laughing at that you wrote season of the binge season of the binge <laughs> i didn't even look at that before okay anyway uh yeah of course today we have laura kellen and zoe and today we are talking about emma goldman ooh, um, ooh. yes an anarchist a feminist a uh, an icon um and I wanted to just start off by asking before we even get into much to like who Emma Goldman is, what she thought about, she thought about everything. So there's a lot of things that she thought about Um, before we get into scraping the surface of that. um, I wanted to see like how y'all first learned about Emma Goldman and like who she was and what she stood for. Um, Because I feel like people come to her in very distinct ways and it's often interesting. I love that. I love that. And I think that you're right. Um, but yeah, you should start. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> so I first learned about Emma Goldman in the book Ragtime, mm. um, which is, I guess, something that like a lot of high schoolers are forced to read. It's like historical fiction about the United States um, in the early 20th century. And it's got it's like a bunch of famous characters a bunch of famous people are characters in this book it is so stupid um there's like a really graphic scene where i you know what i'm not even gonna go into details it's just gross it's the book is terrible but emma goldman is a character in this book and like she's like agitating riots and stuff um and i had this like very you know fake woke radlib um, teacher for this. She was like the liberal at my school, which was just terrible. Um, (laughs) and she was like, Emma Goldman is really cool, but sometimes she went too far. And that is, that was like my first awareness of Emma Goldman as somebody whose name I needed to like memorize for a test in English class. Mm. Yeah. So it took a while for me to be like, oh, she's like a cool person who's not just in this bizarre ass book. I'm sorry, this is maybe a little bit of a like an obscure reference, but people who have read Ragtime will know I'm sure exactly. Someone at least has. Yeah, I mean, also like good on you for even having that in high school. I feel like for me, um, when I was an undergrad, I think I was like 19. Or 20 and I in Ithaca and I think this is a thing that happens in other cities as well but in Ithaca New York there's um a thing called the Friends of the Library book sale and it happens twice a year and it's literally the best thing ever and it supports <laughs> the library and like you buy books for extremely cheap um and I found a copy of Anarchism and Other Essays by Emma Goldman when I was like 19, like perusing this Friends of the Library book sale and took it home and read it and was like, my mind was blown. I was just (laughs) like so into it. And I just, I wanted to read everything that she had ever written after that. And like for a while, just like, like would talk about Emma Goldman to anyone that would listen, even to the point that when I was a PhD student, on my syllabi for my students, I would have like quotes from Emma Goldman in the syllabi, like for <laughs> for them to like ponder as they're looking at their assignments. <laughs> You're into it. I'm very into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Zoe? Um, yeah, well, not to brag about my very useful degree, but I do have a degree in gender studies. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> And we did read some Emma. I had some like rad professors, um, which is like how I came to like leftist thought in general was like through being a feminist first, but then being like, oh, of course, like these things go together. Um, But so I did like just a Google search of Emma earlier to like, you know, see some results, see what's up on Google. And it, it was like this list of related people and it's like a whole list of just like dudes with giant facial hair and then like <laughs> Margaret Sanger and Rosa. Oh, wow. Um, and then just like a shit ton of dudes, like these like black and white portraits. So 
you know, that's what I have to add. <laughs> when you Beautiful. said Margaret Sanger and Rosa, did you mean Emma? No, no. Like oh. I searched Emma oh, and oh, it's oh. a list of like related people. Oh, okay. Okay. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. You're saying yeah. all people related to her. It's like a bunch of like dude philosophers and then like, yeah. Towards yeah. the end, you find like Margaret and Rosa. So I was I like, know. cool, cool, cool. People. I know. We'll, we <laughs> might touch on the Margaret Sanger stuff, but that, you know, we can we can get into it. Um, okay. When the time when the time comes, but that one was always like a double edged sword, of course. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah. So like some like who is Emma Goldman? Uh, <laughs> saddle up because she's a goddamn hero. Um, yeah, Emma Goldman is an anti-capitalist anarchist feminist at the turn of the 20th century. So for me, part of the reason why reading shit that Emma writes is so incredible is because I feel like her most prolific years were like in this very, uh, tenuous time in American history. Um, so, and yeah, I just think the way that she wrote at that time and also like, the way that she orated at that time and the way that people wrote about how she orated at that time is just like really wild given what that time period meant for women um, in America. I went on a rant there, but she was also an immigrant. And so that, you know, that was a big deal as well. So this episode might have a bunch of quotes, but maybe that's because Emma says the best herself. Okay. And like, this way you don't have to do the reading, but like, you know, you still should. Um, so like a little bit of a highlight reel off the bat. She turned to sex work to aid in propaganda, um, as in like she did sex work to share her message and communicate with other women and people who did that work as a way of like spreading her her work. Um she didn't buy into bullshit narratives about women at the time. She got really annoyed that the fir- like with the whole first wave feminist movement because she felt like the focus on the vote was too um, constraining, too limiting. Um, she was a labor hero. She also was a midwife, which like, you know, has a trajectory that Colin's going to go into. But like she was a goddamn midwife, which is badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was a nurse too, um, which uh, is is really interesting. Her experiences as a public health nurse in New York um, played a big role in shaping her political philosophy. Um, although I'm sure you know her political philosophy also shaped her nursing and why she went into nursing. The dialectical, am I right? Oh, oh. Um, yeah, but there's this other really interesting history with Emma Goldman that doesn't get talked about as much as her writings on anarchism and stuff um, be, that involves her views on the healthcare system. Um, and she was a radical leading voice who was sometimes butting heads with women who were at the forefront of what was called the public nursing movement, um, which in and of itself was pretty radical. And like, honestly, in some ways is kind of an improvement over what we have today, like mm-hmm. trying to send nurses as like valuing nurses as knowledgeable healthcare professionals and sending them into communities where they um, frequently were people who had already are already like part of the community at the very least like spoke the languages this is at a time when New York New York I mean it's still really a, a very diverse place but a segregated place um, you know so there's a lot of like um, immigrants from all over the world who lived in New York at the time you know, making sure that there was culturally competent care, all of the stuff that was like way ahead of its time and not something that a lot of people, I think, unless you know a lot about the history of healthcare, know about. And like Emma Goldman was involved in that. Um, but even as radical as maybe that kind of stuff sounds to us today, she was still on like the left edge of that movement and mm. pushing people further, um, trying to, uh, you know, make as many demands on the system for her patients as she could. Um, and so it's like everything she did, she was just like a badass, um, yes. including as a nurse. Fuck yeah. Um, yeah, her view of anarchism is all enveloping. So she opposes draft or conscription. She was pro birth control at a time when it was illegal. She's pro access to information and she fucking crushes it in general. Um, she was also super atheist, which we'll get into in a little bit as well. Um, so a lot of what we're pulling from is from her essay, What I Believe. 
um, which is an incredible essay to start with in general if you want to learn more about Emma Goldman because it goes into in depth in like these specific subtopics, right? Um, and hold on. I feel like I just, I need, to, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I feel like I can hear you flipping through a book. <laughs> okay, well, the... The opening, <laughs> the opening to what I believe is fucking amazing. And I'm just going to like, just to give our listeners an idea of like Herb just being a fucking badass because she does not take shit from anybody. And like, before we get into what she actually believes and those like subgenres that I was alluding to. Here's just like a few zingers from Emma. What I believe has many times been the target of hack writers. Such blood-curdling and incoherent stories have been circulated about me. It is no wonder that the average human being has palpitation at, of the heart at the very mention of the name Emma Goldman. It's too bad that we no longer live in times when witches were burned at the stake or tortured to drive the evil spirit out of them. For indeed, Emma Goldman is a witch. True, she does not eat little children, but she does many worse things. She manufactures bombs and gambles, gambles in crowned heads. <laughs> Wait, she gambles in, in what? Crowned heads. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And then just two quick other sentences um, because it's just like she's fucking nuts. I love it. Um, the student of history of progressive thought is well aware that every idea in its early stages has been misrepresented and the adherents of such ideas have been maligned and persecuted. One not need go back 2,000 years to the time when those who believed in the gospel of Jesus were thrown into the arena or hunted into dungeons to realize how little great beliefs or earnest believers are understood. The history of progress is written in the blood of men and women who have dared to espouse an unpopular cause, as, for instance, the black man's right to his body or the woman's right to her soul. If then, from time immemorial, the new has met with opposition and condemnation, why should my beliefs be exempt from a crown of thorns? And I just wanted to share that because, like, we'll get into her being a staunch atheist, but she, like, fucking takes on that imagery of the crown, like the crown of thorns, you know, and she's just she's so dramatic but she's also just like dragging everyone and she's so confident in her beliefs that she's just like yeah um i this is a good idea what i'm saying is a good idea and even though i'm being dragged for it like those are the haters and they're wrong and i feel comfortable knowing that uh <laughs> <laughs> no i'm just like just you know nodding along just like yeah hell yeah Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, so then, yeah, we'll get into her pillars of what she believes in different sections. Awesome. So one of them is property. Um, and she's written about property in a few different contexts. She's, as you might imagine, not super fond of um, <laughs> private property and the role that it plays in the capitalist system. As she defines it, property means dominion over things and the denial to others of the use of those things. She also says that it's conceded by all radical thinkers that the fundamental cause of this terrible state of affairs is that, one, man must sell his labor, and two, that his inclination and judgment are subordinated to the will of the master. Um, and in her mind, anarchism is like the philosophy um, that leads to crushing the system that, that um, anarchism provides a way forward out of capitalism and into a world in which humans can be their fullest selves. Um, and I know we were thinking about taking a little time to talk about that. Um, it might be helpful to define what anarchism is before we try mm -hmm. to evaluate it and its ability to crush the property regime. Um, I do want to to make note that Walida is sad that she can't be with us today because she does not agree with um, 
uh, with Emma Goldman on this front. Um, so I want to just say, Walita, we're here. We see you. And she just wanted to talk about how there are a lot of early feminist writers who um, have written about structurelessness and how it leads to tyranny. Um, And we can link to the article that she suggested that we read um, that like has kind of an alternative view to this. Um, So we'll put that in the description. Okay, so yes. Good call, Kellen. Let's do a definition of anarchism. My bad. Um, So Emma writes that the definition of anarchism is the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government rest on violence and are therefore wrong and harmful as well as unnecessary. Yeah. So she, um, she, Believes in anarchism with her whole heart. Uh, I feel like I, I think we all know some people who call themselves anarchism. And I mean, anarchists <laughs> and like their version of that. It's like, I wear my like old man newspaper seller hat on the weekends and like have my home stitched red and black flag that I wave around. Um, and like, but I like to tell women what to do with their bodies because, uh, if they were only free thinkers, like I want them to be, they'd have sex with me. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's not what I'm talking about. Just she, another example uh, of how men ruin things. Just, uh, I'm sorry. Are you, are you, are you uh, subtweeting leftist men right now? Because <laughs> we would never. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> but yeah, she, she, uh, she was like. If you're going to be an anarchist, you need to like fucking be an anarchist, you know, like you need to live your entire life along those lines. Um, And uh, she did it. And um, I think, you know, everybody or most people are probably familiar with the like, um, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. Mm. But Emma's version of anarchism was also one, I think, in her mind that was like, um, inherently like joyous in some ways, um, not to get, I mean, I know we were going to talk about property there, but, um, it is kind of, she, you know, I don't know that I, I'm not sure. I don't know if I believe, you know, that, that we're capable of, of living without government, or maybe that's just because I'm too close minded or small minded, but I do, I really appreciate the spirit that pervades a lot of what she writes and talks about. Totally. Like it's, it's, that I mean, you know, when we were kind of putting this together, it's like, do we believe her that anarchism is the only philosophy that can do this? It's like, it's hard to, it's hard to feel that way, right? It's hard to like be like in that frame of mind because mostly because of the U.S. military in a big way, but like also like, I don't know. It's just, I don't know if it's because, you know, 1910 was a different time. Uh, the Russian Revolution was yet to happen. Like, I don't know if if anarchism, if if like that time period lended itself more to this like altruistic version of anarchism. Although I do feel like the spirit of anarchism can be really um, like really drawn out and still very present today. And I think we'll get into that more in like some of the other subsections. But yeah, when it comes to property, it is interesting because it's like how can we like combat this without government intervention? It's hard to think about for sure. Right. But I, I don't know that she, um, and this is where we start getting to like the, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Goldman expert by any chance, but I don't know sure. that she, um, you know, believed the immediate fall of the government was necessary. Um, you know, she, I think she was, she had, you know, strategy that she thought out and her, her, um, versions of, of like what, what was justified, what sort of strategy would bring an end to capitalism and an end to government as we knew it. And that changed over time. Um, she wrote a a book called my disillusionment in Russia, Mm. um, where she went to the, the new Soviet union, um, and was like, oh, I don't, I don't love what's happening here. Um, she actually wrote a second f- book called My Further Disillusionment in Russia. Yes. 
Um, yeah, she's, it's fascinating. But anyway, um, yeah, so she, I mean, it's, it, we also can't talk about Emma Goldman as like a static figure because right, like course. everybody, she's not, you know, she, she, her visions changed over time. Um, but in, in terms of, of property, I think the way that her thoughts on this tie to anarchism, um, as opposed to sort of other, um, sort of general theories of, um, you know, socialism, communism, other sort of left political positions. She believed that um, hierarchy, I mean, an anarchist in general, sort of, that hierarchy in any form um, was illegitimate, that property was a means of creating hierarchy, Mm -hmm. um, that that was inherent to uh, any sort of private property system, and that it was only the abolition of private property um, that could bring real equality among among humans. So, and I think there's, I think that a, a suspicion of hierarchy um, is like, you know, incredibly healthy. I think that power um, is, that's like what leads to a lot of really terrible shit in our world. Um, yes, thank you. I am a genius. Yes. Uh, I did just come up with that. Fuck yeah. Property or power leads to a lot of terrible shit. You can quote me. That's right. Um, Kellen, 2019, brilliant. baby. It is brilliant. brilliant. Very here but but in seriousness you know like she um that's that's where her distrust of property came from because she saw it as like integral to hierarchy in general um and i i'm definitely down with that fuck yeah so i think with that we'll go to her next filler which is government um so i'm gonna start off with another quote and then we'll kind of keep discussing that um so her quote I believe that government, organized authority, or the state is necessary only to maintain or protect property and monopoly. It is proven efficient in that function only. As a promoter of individual liberty, human well-being, and social harmony, which alone constitute real order, government stands condemned by all the great men of the world. So, cool. (laughs) Um, So how does, um, like, what she's suggesting differ from socialism? Yeah. <laughs> Big question. I know. <laughs> I just, I, so I, I think about this all the time, right? Because, you know, socialists still look to the state. We look to the state as like, you know, we under, we cr- we're critical of the state as it's in cahoots with capitalism now. But, you know, a lot of socialists believe that, you know, the government will provide a lot of stuff. And I think for her, she's, going back to that thing that kind of Kellen was talking about, you know, like anyone with power is going to be corrupted. Um, And I think that that is a a different perspective than we hear from regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of critiques, you know, um, Lenin wrote about the, like the bourgeois state, um, but still thought like the state apparatus was really important um, for, uh, for revolution. And, you know, that, that is not, what we're getting from Emma at all. Totally. um, Yeah. I mean, Lennon also said that like Rosa was bad at running meetings because she talked about feminism too much. So I don't know how much we want to take. Oh, I wasn't, I was was not (laughs) trying to like endorse Lennon. No, no, no. I know. I'm I'm further delegitimatizing him. (laughs) (laughs) I was just, I was just saying in terms of to, to Laura's point, like there, um, I think the role of the state is like a really important point of contention among mm-hmm. people on the left. And yeah, you have definitely. you have people like, you know, you have um, anarchists. Um, interesting that we don't call them Goldmanites or anything like that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Just curious. Jump on a hobby horse of Zoe's. Why are no theories named after women? Um, um, actually, uh, there are, Kellen. Oh, my Why God. Women. <laughs> LOL. Uh, Yo, get out of our, get, stop adding us. Okay. That's all we're (laughs) saying right now. Just like, stop. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yes. Uh, But um, yeah. So you, so you have like, you have the Goldmanite anarchists, you know, suspicious of any, any sort of, any sort of state in the short term, the medium term or the long term. And then you have, you have Leninists. I mean, I guess there are still Stalinists out there, you know, like p- people who are sort of on the the Marxist Leninist end of the spectrum um, who 
are um, a lot more confident that there needs to be some sort of state apparatus or at the very least like a, um, you know, a party apparatus that uh, does dictate, um, you know, policy that dictates um, philosophy party, you know, that, that there needs to be rigid discipline within the party. Um, and you don't have to be a, a Leninist or, or a Stalinist. I know that I've had conversations with Tatiana, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago and talked about Trotskyism. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's like a huge point of contention. And um, Emma Goldman is definitely coming from a like a very particular perspective on this one. Yeah, definitely. So um, another thing I wanted to talk about within her thoughts on the government is about crime. Um, and a lot of people's belief that the absence of government would lead to chaos and a lot of crime. And here's what she has to say about that. As to the stereotyped argument that government acts as a check on crime and vice, even the makers of law no longer believe it. This country spends millions of dollars for the maintenance of her criminals beyond prison bars, yet crime is on the increase. Surely this state of affairs is not owning to an insufficiency of laws. 90% of all crimes are property crimes, which have their root in our economic inequ inequities. So long as these latter continue to exist, we might convert every lamppost into a gibbet without having the least effect on the crime in our midst. Crimes resulting from heredity can certainly never be cured by law. Surely we are learning, even today, that such crimes can effectively be treated only by the best modern medical methods at our command, and, above all, by the spirit of deeper sense of fellowship, kindness, and understanding. So, yeah, what do we think? Uh, what do we think about her argument on crime? Mm. I fucking love this. Yeah, I was forming a thought as I was reading, and then I, it kind of slipped my mind. <laughs> yeah, I for me, <laughs> her shit on crime is so powerful because it calls out one of the most reprehensible thing that the state does, which is criminalize and ins continue to enslave people um, at the hands of the state and, of course, end up uh, killing people at the hands of the state. Um and I think that this is a really good argument to have in your back pocket if people question, like, what, you know, what would we do without the needs, of, without the government there? You know, in this same paragraph, she kind of goes on to talk about how we as human beings in a community are much more likely to hold each other accountable and, like, with getting rid of all of these um, inequities, e economic inequities, material inequities, a lot of these, you know, so-called crimes would not happen. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously ludicrous to think that the government somehow prevents crime rather than is committing crime. Um, right. And like that, our carceral state is really at all effective. Um, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is like a really effective argument, even if people are not willing to go so far as to say, like, we need to get rid of the state. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really powerful argument in favor of prison abolition. Totally. You know? Yeah. Um, and a very clear and, and thoughtfully written and concise way of uh, making the point that most crime, quote unquote, crime is crime of poverty. And you're um, you eliminate crime by eliminating poverty um, and criminalizing poverty while also participating in systems and, you know, creating and, um, you know, upholding systems that create poverty creates crime and creates criminalization. And those two things are mutually constitutive. Um, mm. And the solution one way or the other is, um, a system without without poverty, which also under Emma Goldman's theory would need to be without without a state and without private property. Yeah. But even if you don't want to go that far, definitely a, a solid argument for prison abolition at the yeah, very least. For sure. No, I I fucking love this shit. Like I think that this quote that Zoe just read is like one of the ones that I was reading when I was like 19, being like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so cute. You know what I mean? Like, just imagine 19-year-old Laura, like, sitting in a bookstore, like, pouring over this book and, like, literally having my mind blown, being like, 
the, the state is the perpetrator. <laughs> I mean, now that's more obvious to us. But like, I do feel like for people who aren't super aware of this, like she just lays it out in such plain language also, which I really love about her writing. Uh, yeah, I stay on her, you know, y'all know. <laughs> yeah, and I think a, um, sort of a related topic, obviously, to prisons and to the state is militarism, which is an, um, another uh, pillar that she discusses in this book. So she writes, you know, to read another quote. The fact is that anarchists are the only true advocates of peace, the only people who call a halt to the growing tendency of militarism, which is fast making of this erstwhile free country an imperialistic and despotic power. The military spirit is the most merciless, heartless, and brutal in existence. It fosters an institution for which there is not even a pretense of justification. The soldier, to quote Tolstoy, is a professional man-killer. He does not kill for the love of it, like a savage, which questionable, um, or in a passion like a homicide. He is a cold-blooded, mechanical, obedient tool of his military superiors. He is ready to cut throats or scuttle a ship at the command of his ranking officer without knowing or perhaps caring how, why, or wherefore. (laughs) Uh, So she's, yeah, not not pulling punches. Um, (laughs) It's an interesting... That's an interesting passage. Um, totally. For well, like the distinction between homicide and like homicide or like killing for passion versus like killing in the mechanical way. Like it's interesting because I, you know, like for me, I'm just like killing is killing. But then when you do it in that way, she's making like a she's I don't think she's arguing like people should commit homicide. But I think she's at least saying like there's a reason when people do that, like there's like a moment of passion behind that, that like is at least like understandable to the human brain where like killing in this mechanical way is like just like brutalist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, you know, my, my interests in Goldman's theories on militarism um, are sort of, I think directed in sort of a different direction than it sounds like yours are Laura. Laura did pull this quote. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to bring in sort of a different aspect of her writings on militarism um, in sort of in different contexts. Um, Laura pulled this quote from the book that um, we've been talking mostly about, but she's also written a lot specifically um, about uh, World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, she was really committed to fighting the war Um she, like Eugene Debs, was imprisoned for her resistance um, to World War One. She uh, believed that um, it was a, a entirely a capitalist enterprise meant to further enrich um, the already wealthy and sent, you know, millions of people to death. Um, she, uh, which you know, I think is it's hard to argue with, especially in the case of um, World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also had this sort of very interesting link between militarism and women's rights, um, which like Laura, Laura, you alluded to it at the beginning that she was actually like an opponent in a lot of ways of first wave feminism. And part of that was because of this focus on the right to vote. And maybe we'll get into this, but Emma Goldman believed that voting was um, at at, at best a like didn't accomplish anything and was generally a an actually harmful act because it legitimized the state mm-hmm. um, and pacified people and their resistance to it. Um, but she also really, really hated this idea that women um, were, you know, sort of preternaturally gifted um, in, you know, in terms of morality and their ability to discern right from wrong. And that was a point that a lot of people made in a lot of suffragists made that like, you know, women would be softer and kinder voters than they would, um, you know, uh, you know, be the like nice voters who, you know, were less militaristic Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the context of World War One, which came about in sort of the middle of the suffragette movement and um, women ended up getting the, the right to vote on a national level right after World War One. Emma was like, you know, the idea that women would um, like 
if women were voters, we wouldn't go to war is like absolute bullshit, basically. Mm. Um, and she also thought one one um, quote of hers that I liked that was dealing with uh, with with this sort of subject is sort of reflecting also on her total distrust of the state to assume that she, a, a woman voter, would succeed in purifying something which is not susceptible to purification is to credit her with supernatural powers. Um, and uh, just, I guess, to Emma, um, militarism is in- inherently tied with the state apparatus mm-hmm. and no one is capable of building or running a state that is not inherently militaristic, including women. And so her distrust of the women's rights movement at the time is very much tied up in the way that women's claims were for inclusion in the state, a state which was at that very moment selling arms to Europe and then getting involved and sending soldiers to fight and die in this war as well. Yeah, for sure. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's friggin' bonkers. She's, she's, I love how like staunchly opposed she is to certain things, you know? She just like keeps that tone really consistent. She keeps it consist. Yeah, she's like super adamant against conscription. Mm-hmm. She thought that that was like just an incredibly obvious um, violation of, indi- you know, an individual's rights. It was like, a, a in just like bald face extension of the state's authority into realms it should not be able to extend and was like um she started a a group called the no conscription league <laughs> mm-hmm. and so she got arrested for that in 1917 and then deported in 1919 for it yeah yeah she's wild yeah she, i think she lives her truth that is yeah. first just thinking about like the voting or yeah, the suffragette movement and like voting for women. I mean, I think that it's kind of a similar thing that we see now where once a certain like fight, quote unquote, is won, then, you know, the lib activists are like, well, we did it. So like the suffragette movement happened. And then a lot of women were, were like, okay, feminism's over. Like we can vote now. It's done. Totally. Which is also what we saw with like, once gay marriage was legalized, it was like, okay, cool. Like there's rights for everyone. Yeah. Um, so it's not that it was like a not worthy fight. Cause it, she's right that in a lot, I agree with a lot, a lot of what she said about voting, but it's also like, if everyone is vote or if all the men are voting, like, yeah, I still would like women to be able to vote, even totally. though voting's stupid. <laughs> no. And she, she talked about that. She was like, I, yeah, I'm for, I'm for the suffrage movement in that women should not be barred from the same thing that men have access to. Right. Exactly. Um, but it is interesting. So um, she has a whole essay on um, on the suffragette movement. And she has a quote that's something along the lines of, I want women to be emancipated from emancipation. And she kind of goes on to describe what she means by that, which is mostly that she she felt as though being beholden to the specific idea of emancipa- emancipation that was tied up in voting was actually like another cage. And, you know, when we get into the church, we'll talk about this a lot, but um, she really thought about freeing your mind and freeing like these artificial boundaries in your brain um when you break those down like that's when the most radical and free thought happens and that is I think for her like where a lot of like the root of revolution comes from like a a lot of it for her starts at the individual and then like you know goes into the collective and I do think that like exactly what you were saying Zoe where it's like the you know feminism's over like she had you know as at before women got the right to vote she had like an awareness that this was like a limitation that women were like solely focused on um and i think that that was part of her critique as well yeah Yeah. and i I think there's there's a couple of things going on there that sort of y'all have touched on but to just like make it really explicit and concrete like 
one of them is this idea that there's something inherent about women um, that means their involvement in the state is going to um, be in some way purifying, mm. um, that being a woman is enough. Um, right. And, you know, nobody was using the term identity politics uh, in, you know, 1915, but the a lot of the, you know, blind devotion to Hillary Clinton, the idea that, you know, a woman in power is what it takes for women's liberation, um, the dedication to, I don't even watch Game of Thrones, but uh, Khaleesi, Daenerys, whatever, <laughs> um, like, lib women freaking out and losing their fucking minds when yeah. the blonde dragon queen started frying up people and whatever. Yeah. Like... But, but uh, you know, also the fact that, like, the governor of Alabama is a woman mm-hmm. who just signed the most restrictive abortion bill in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, being a woman is not enough right. to make you, you know, to make you a revolutionary, to make you an ally of the workers. Like, it doesn't, if you are, um, you know, a capitalist, a member of the capitalist class, like, it doesn't, your gender is irrelevant in terms of how you're likely to act within sort of the broader system. And then the the second thing is, I think that. Um, Wait, can I? I'm is, sorry. Just really quickly, can I interject? That she has like yeah. a fucking perfect quote that is exactly what you were just describing, um, in this essay that she wrote in 1911 called "Women's Suffrage," and she says. The most ardent church workers, the most tireless missionaries the world over are women, always sacrificing on the altar of the gods that have chained her spirit and, is, and enslaved her body. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and that, I think, goes to like the, the sort of the second thing that I was just going to try to draw out of the themes you guys were talking about with like the, um, you know, emancipation of the mind, um, the the right to vote as an issue that is the target of organizing um, isn't in its in it is in itself a benefit to the capitalist class mm-hmm. into the state because that's where women are directing their energies at getting that very specific right. Um, and even if you have the right to vote as a woman, you're still subordinated in so many different ways. You're still at the bottom of so many different hierarchies. Obviously, this is compounded if you are a woman of color. Um, or a a poor woman or a sex worker, um, if you are in any way, you know, um, outside of gender norms in the early 20th century, that's, you know, compounded. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have all of these different axes upon which women um, that, you know, Emma Goldman, the women that she's writing about are oppressed. And it's not just that they don't have the right to vote. But if the right to vote becomes this holy grail, becomes the end goal of organizing, sort of like Zoe was saying, um, then you don't see all of the other forms of oppression that are just as real. And you end up pushing to end a form of oppression that once you have it, you know, and Emma Goldman's thinking is it's just the ability of women to participate in a facade that legitimizes the state. Mm -hmm. And so the sort of women's suffrage movement for that reason seems particularly bankrupt from Emma Goldman's point of view. Yes. Very well put. Well, you guys were saying like making all these great points. And I was like, I feel like, I feel like we can crystallize this into two distinct things. Um, Yeah. So yeah. No, and I'm glad because I, like, in that particular essay, she doesn't have, like, a whole thing on the suffrage movement, but it should have its own space. And, like, so I'm glad that we kind of had time to dive into that there, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, But moving right along, because we still have three more pillars to go. Um, <laughs> the The next one is the church. Um, and I've read other pieces of hers that bring this out more concretely, but I think the biggest thing that she's suggesting is that there is an imprisonment of the mind that occurs when someone is religious. Um, similar of that when someone is imprisoned by governments um, in her mind. She's suggesting that people are less free thinking if they have the imposition of a church's rules and expectations on them. So... Um, Again, this was one of those things that 19-year-old me, like, who grew up Catholic, was like, my mind was blown because Catholicism was really damaging for me. And when I thought about all the, all the like, proclivities that I had um, been brought up with, you know, like, the guilt that I had been feeling about various things, um, <clears throat> and, like, the ways that 
in general, if you believe in an, if you're brought up to believe in an afterlife, you know, like how much your brain is programmed to be like, well, I need to behave in this specific way so that I can like have eternal life. Um, and I, I think like those types of rules and cages that we kind that religion can, um, put your brain into where you're like, behave your actions actually change because of this thought process I think that's really what she's you know coming up against of course as well as the institution itself but I do think when she was talking about church and the and religion um and she grew up as an orthodox Jew she I is very much focused on what it does to your mind yes yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I I don't have any specific quotes for that one because there's so much written about it. And like, I just felt like, you know, it gets more into like this weird ephemeral brain thing. <laughs> yeah, well, she's very much on board with the, you know, the oft quoted and, and this is a simplification of Marx, but, you know, the religion is the opiate of the masses. Right. Um, I think is uh a theme that's certainly prevalent in her thinking about religion. And, and she also definitely sees it as, um, you know, aiding the state in a lot of ways. She, I think wrote a little bit about like the Zionist movement. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, this was like towards, you know, um, towards the end, you know, end of her life that this stuff was going on. Well, I mean, you know, when it was really gaining traction, sure. Actually, she died in 1940, so she didn't even see the creation of Israel as a state. But she, um, I guess, had been worried about earlier, sort of earlier um, uh, turn of the century, 19-teens and 20s Zionist movements, um, and saw that as an extension of um, religion into sort of very... um, explicit state legitimization. Um, and I think her background as somebody growing up in an Orthodox Jewish community probably affected the way that she understood that and, um, the way that she made those connections. But obviously that is, that was a sort of very prescient, um, observation as well. So I want to move into my favorite section. (laughs) She talks about love and marriage and, um, So quickly, I'm going to talk about the marriage side of things because it's less interesting. It's kind of what you would think. Um, But backtracking even a little bit more, uh, thinking about her her writing on sex work um, and prostitution uh, is the language that she used. But um, she she writes a lot about like taking the morality out of that, like the judgment that comes from people and like all these pure like people who are obsessed with purity and whatever the fuck, you know, same thing as today. But she also goes on to to just to like point out the hypocrisy of people judging sex work because she views um, many marriages as a um, as an extension as like a state sanctioned version of prostitution because she um, understood and you know, to the extent that it is still prevalent in our culture today, like girls are still told at a young age, like you got to keep going because if a boy gets blue balls, that's really bad. And like all of these kind of like performative sex acts that women do to keep men happier, to keep them from becoming violent or X, Y, and Z. And she was writing about that at the time and viewed like marriage as state, state sanctioned, um, prostitution as well as, um, a way for women to just like, you know, serve a man in in these ways that was state sanctioned. And also like she wrote a lot about how it was related to the labor force and stuff like that as well. But yeah, no, that's a similar thought I've read um, like from other sex workers. I'm trying to think specifically of the quote I'm thinking of, but um, it was in the feminist porn book. I just don't remember. It's like a book of essays, but um, just saying like, in terms of traditional marriage institution, like some women are obviously uh, in theory, sex is a part of marriage and like, yeah, you're performing that. And then you're getting like food or housing and right. like his healthcare, like that kind of stuff. Um, whereas like sex workers are getting cash. They can do what they want with. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and she does. So she it's interesting because she doesn't throw out marriage completely, though. She she does have a whole section that's called an anarchist's dream. <laughs> and it says each will enter the marriage state with the physical with physical strength and moral confidence in each other. Each will love and esteem the other and will help in working not only for their own welfare, but being happy themselves, they will desire also the universal happiness of humanity. The offspring of such unions will be strong and healthy in mind and body and will honor and respect their parents, not because it is their duty to do so, but because the parents deserve it. They will be instructed and cared for by the whole community and will be free to follow their own inclinations. And there will be no necessity to teach them syncophancy and the base art of preying upon their fellow beings. Their aim in life will be not to obtain power over their brothers, but to win the respect and esteem of every member of the community. I love that. That's like, that's what wedding vows should be. Totally. I am though. Yeah. yeah I mean, I feel like that's kind of like proto civil union. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, and then, so then she has like a shit ton of quotes about love and they're all pretty short. Um, so I just want to read a few of them and then we can just talk about how Emma is a goddamn hopeless romantic and she views love as like one of the most revolutionary acts. And I fucking love this about her. I like, a, I'm obsessed with it. So she says, well, there, she says, love is that most powerful factor of human relationship which from time immemorial has defied all man-made laws broken through the iron bars of conventions in church and morality. Um, So that's one part. (laughs) She also has said, how many emancipated women are brave enough to acknowledge that the voice of love is calling, wildly beating against their breasts, demanding to be heard, to be satisfied? I love, yeah. Yes. She, first of all, Emma is horny. Yeah, she's not afraid to admit it. Right, and I respect that. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. You know, like game recognized game, Emma. Yes, um, yes, yes. This geez. next one is so fucking nuts. Okay. <laughs> Rather would I have the love songs of romantic ages? Rather Don Juan and Madame Venus. Rather, an elopement by ladder and rope on a moonlit night, followed by father's curse, mother's moans, and the moral comments of neighbors, than correctness and propriety measured by yardsticks. If love does not know how to give and take without restrictions, it is not love, but a transaction that never fails to lay stress on a plus and a minus. (laughs) There you go. She's so fucking nuts. Okay. And then there's this last one. I mean, there are honestly probably hundreds more, but like this is the last one because I don't want to just like talk about love for a million hours, but I would. Love, the strongest and deepest element in all life, the harbinger of hope, of joy, of ecstasy. Love, the defier of all laws, of all conventions. Love, the freest, the most powerful molder of human destiny. How can such an all-compelling force be synonymous with that poor little state in church begotten weed, marriage? LMAO. Love it. (laughs) So yeah, girls got opinions, but I mean, like, she's a fucking romantic. She's fucking, like, I think again, like, she sees when you, like, take these limits in your brain out that like love is a is kind of an or I think she would argue that love is like the organic uh, end result of kind of taking those limits out I just I wanted to comment just a couple of things about her views on sexuality yeah yeah Um, yeah totally just because I think this is like one of the most important things about Emma Goldman that doesn't get as much attention I mean it wasn't like a huge part of what she wrote and talked about but Um, she was like openly, she did openly discuss, um, like the queer community basically, although obviously it wouldn't be called that, um, you know, in the early 20th century. Um, but she wrote and publicly spoke about how, um, sexuality was, um, like, uh, like being what she called, you know, and what people would call 
all homosexuals, like being homosexual wasn't weird or unnatural or something that people should be punished for. Um, there's a letter that she wrote that um, has some, you know, I'm going to pull a little Laura here and just read a, like a sentence from it. She says, um, in writing to her friend, it is a tragedy, I feel, that people of a different sexual type are caught in a world which shows so little understanding for homosexuals and is so crassly indifferent to the various gradations and variations of gender and their great significance in mm. life. Like, yes. Emma's out here being like, shit, y'all, gender's a spectrum, sexuality's a spectrum, like, I don't give a fuck. She was an, also a an advocate of free love, um, mm. which is like, go if you want to have sex with somebody and they want to have sex with you like go for it um she thought birth control was really important to be like to make that a possibility especially for women um that was some of the origin of her support for birth control was not just that it it liberated women from motherhood and from you know being constrained within marriage um into a like a housebound role of raising children but also because it like meant that women w could have full sexual lives with like the partners that they wanted um and yeah. there's like all kinds of stuff that she was talking about in like you know, the late 1890s into, you know, the first couple decades of the 20th century that just like other people, um, especially people who, you know, again, by our standards would not would um, be considered gay um, or trans um, people outside that those communities just weren't talking about. Um, totally. And I, I think it it's really impressive that she understood the full ramifications of her philosophy as it extended to questions of, of gender and sexuality. Like she was constantly working to, you know, unburden her brain of um, the constraints that society was, you know, pushing that Laura's been talking about. And that meant that she went in a direction that even a lot of really radical anarchists were not going. Um, in terms of being accepting of like other, you know, non-straight hetero mm -hmm. ways of existing as like a sexual being. Absolutely. Okay. So um, moving on from those happier topics to her <laughs> sixth pillar, which is on violence. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote here on this. The general contention that anarchists are opposed to organization and hence stand for chaos is absolutely groundless. True, we do not believe in the compulsory, arbitrary side of organization that would compel people of antagonistic tastes and interests into a body and hold them there by coercion. Organization as the result of natural blending of common interests brought about through voluntary adhesion. Anarchists do not only not oppose, but believe in as the only possible basis of social life. It is the harmony of organic growth which produces variety of color and form. The complete whole we admire in the flower. Analogously, will the organized activity of free human beings endowed with the spirit of solidarity result in the perfection of social harmony, which is anarchism? Indeed, only anarchism makes non-authoritarian organization a reality since it abolishes the existing antagonism between individuals and classes. I just love the way that she writes about things like because I do think when people think of Antifa or like or Antifa, I never know whatever the fucking way to say it. But yeah, <clears throat> I think like people think about it in terms of like, well, they're like violent or whatever. And it's just like, um, first of all, property damage isn't violence. But second of all, like punching Nazis also isn't violence. <laughs> she definitely she thought and her views on violence changed over time, but mm -hmm. she definitely was like, honestly, like a revolution is going to be violent. Like, sorry about it. Yeah. She also was like, yeah, Henry Clay Frick deserved to die yes. for the way that he murdered a bunch of uh, strikers during the Homestead strike. Um, and it's a shame that he wasn't actually assassinated. Yes. Um, but as she got older, she was like, yeah, I feel like, this could go too far and that violence for violence's sake is inherently counter-revolutionary mm. um and reactive uh so she she was like basically some violence is probably going to be necessary to overthrow capitalism but 
um, it always has to be measured and there has to be purpose behind it. And so it's not anarchism in like a hedonist anarchism that, that Goldman is advocating, but one in which there is strategy behind any sort of violent maneuver that takes place. Mm-hmm. Like in the case of Frick, she was like, that would have really motivated people to like rise up against their bosses and shown them that like, um, you know, their death is not the inevitable consequence of labor struggle. Right. But anyway, totally. Yeah, that's, that's Emma on violence. That's Emma. Um, so the last <laughs> thing we wanted to end with uh, is that Emma wrote a goddamn new declaration of independence. Um, it's not very long and we thought we'd leave y'all um, who are now obviously all Emma stands, you know, we'll leave you with uh, this declaration, this new declaration of independence. <clears throat> when in the course of human development, existing institutions prove inadequate to the needs of man, when they serve merely to enslave, rob and oppress mankind, the people have the eternal right to rebel against and overthrow these institutions. The mere fact that these forces, inimical to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are legitimized by statute laws, sanctified by divine rights, and enforced by political power, in no way justifies their continued existence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all human beings, irrespective of race, color, or sex, are born with equal right to share at the table of life, that to secure this right, there must be established among men economic, social, and political freedom, We hold further that the government exists but to maintain special privilege and property rights, that it coerces man into submission and therefore robs him of dignity, self-respect, and life. The history of the American kings of capital and authority is the history of repeated crimes, injustice, oppression, outrage, and abuse, all aiming at the suppression of individual liberties and the exploitation of the people. A vast country rich enough to supply all her children with all possible comforts and ensure well-being to all, is in the hands of a few, while the nameless millions are at the mercy of ruthless wealth gatherers, unscrupulous lawmakers, and corrupt politicians. Sturdy sons of America are forced to tramp the country in a fruitless search for bread, and many of her daughters are driven into the street, while thousands of tender children are daily sacrificed on the altar of mammon. The reign of these kings is holding mankind in slavery, perpetuating poverty and disease, maintaining crime and corruption. It is fettering the spirit of liberty, throttling the voice of justice, and degrading and oppressing humanity. It is engaged in continual war and slaughter, devastating the country and destroying the best and finest qualities of man. It nurtures superstition and ignorance, sows prejudice and strife, and turns the human family into a camp of Ishmaelites. We, therefore, the liberty-loving men and women, realizing the great injustice and brutality of this state of affairs, earnestly and boldly do hereby declare that each and every individual is and ought to be free to own himself and to enjoy the full fruit of his labor, that man is absolved from all allegiance to the kings of authority and capital, that he has, by the very fact of his being, free access to the land and all means of production and entire liberty of disposing of the fruits of his efforts that each and every individual has the unquestionable and unbridgeable right of free and voluntary association with other equally sovereign individuals for economic, political, social, and all other purposes. And that to achieve this end, man must emancipate himself from the sacredness of property, the respect for man-made law, the fear of the church, the cowardice of public opinion, the stupid arrogance of national, racial, religious, and sex superiority, and from the narrow puritanical conception of human life. And for the support of this declaration, and with a firm reliance on the harmonious blending of man's social and individual tendencies, the lovers of liberty joyfully consecrate their uncompromising devotion, their energy and intelligence, their solidarity, and their lives. (laughs) Yeah! Oh! (laughs) It's so good! (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. (laughs) Love it. Like, literally, that's it. That's how we're going to end it. Thank you for listening to our Emma Goldman, who is she episode. Uh, we hope you get to, that you know her a little more and want are curious about reading more about her. Um, 
And as always, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter um, at Season of the Bee. You can contact us, seasonofthebee at gmail.com if you have any um, specific things you want us to cover or if you have any music that you'd like us to play. Um, we also have merch on our website, seasonofthebee.com. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and slide us your dollars on Patreon. Love you. Bye. Love, Love you. you. Bye. 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 Bye.